were childhood sweethearts. We had grown up together and he caught a very serious and sad disease called midlife crisis. And when he left me, my world was rocked. Welcome to the Real Talk 238 podcast with your host, Denise Lee, a licensed professional counselor and nationally board certified counselor in the state of Alabama. The focus of the Real Talk 238 podcast is to have real conversations concerning taboo topics that people in the church may find themselves struggling with or feel they may not be able to talk about. The topics discussed on the Real Talk 238 podcast are intended strictly for informational and educational purposes only. These topics are not a substitute nor does it replace professional medical, psychiatric, psychological, or mental health advice, nor is it a substitute for a diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or a qualified licensed mental health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or mental health disorder. right now. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Thank you today for coming to the Real Talk 238 podcast and listening. I'm excited about today's guest. Her name is Karen Gordon-Hemis. She's from Aurora, Colorado. And she's been a Pampered Chef Advanced Director for quite a long time. And then Prior to that, she was also doing publicist, but she has retired from that. She was a publicist for 26 years. She's very passionate about grammar. She was married for 25 years to Mark, but she has been a single lady for the last 21 years. She has three grown daughters, three son-in-loves, and seven world-class grandkids. And as far as pets go, she wants to know, do best bunnies count? She attends Vertical Church in Aurora, Colorado. She is fourth generation Pentecost and she received the Holy Ghost at the age of eight. And ways she has served in ministry, she is part of the Gordon Sisters Great Singing Group. She's also involved with Home Groups Director, Praise Team and Hospitality. And she describes herself as being fun, happy, thankful, extroverted, and cheerful. She was born in a big family. She loves Jesus, her family, the sunshine, the Colorado mountains, and fruit. After 21 years, her husband had left and rocked her world. And she's learned so much. And then 12 years ago, she had a tumor removed from her side that resulted in a mostly paralyzed leg. She relearned to walk at the age of 50. And she now has walked about 20,000 miles on her paralyzed leg. And fun fact about her, she sleeps with the curtains open. So the moon and later the sun can come right in. This is one thing she did say. There's a lot of life to live even after the storm. And I I couldn't have said that better myself. Hey, Karen, how are you today? I am having a really happy day today. Is there anything you want to add to that? No, it sounds like you told my life story there. Okay. So I had reached out to you like a few weeks ago because your story, at least a portion of it really touches my heart in a personal way because 19 years ago, I think it was, well, soon to be 20 years ago, I had trouble walking, got to the point of being on a walker and ended up going to the Gordon concert. 
So I think this was about 2002, not the Gordon concert. It was the Western Florida Ladies Conference. Yeah, it's from Florida. And I was there on this walker. The Gordon sisters, your group that you're involved with was there singing and just really ministered to me, bless my heart. And I remember I went and got a tape and I think I had talked to you at the table, but of course that was a long time ago. It was totally me at the table because that's my favorite job. I love talking to everyone there at the CD table for sure. Got a tape when they had tapes back then, wore that thing slap out. I mean, it it no longer plays legibly anymore. <laughs> and the, we could get you a CD now. That'd be awesome. God healed me at that women's conference. It was a while later, though, that I had heard about your story with your leg and the paralysis and going through all that. Does that sound about right? Yeah. Like I said, you, you see a lot of people. Well, what's interesting is uh, I counted at some point recently how many ladies conferences I've personally attended, and it's over 100. I've been to every single one they have ever had here in Colorado. There are four ladies in our district who have never missed one of the ladies' conferences, and I'm one of them. That's awesome. And then with the Gordon sisters, we have been to 70 different ladies' conferences. I've been to quite a few. It's been a big thing in my life, for sure. And if you don't know who the Gordon sisters are, all of your siblings harmonize beautifully. And there's six of you? Kathy, Carla, Karen, Kelly, Crystal, and Kendra. Six. How many brothers do you have? We have two brothers. They are not Ks. Their middle names are Ks. Bradley, Carl, and Rodney Kent. It is what it is. Yeah, it just harmonizes beautifully. If you get a chance, go listen to their music. I know you will. it'll bless you for sure. We talked prior to the recording and, and I've left this up to Karen, which direction she wants it to go. Because anybody who's listened to my podcast, a lot of time it's very organic. I don't have a set script. I don't have a set of questions. We just kind of let it flow and let it go. So I asked you about your tumor. Let's just start there first and then you can go whatever direction. Now, how did you find out about the tumor? I had this, that I could feel a growth in my side and the tumor was wrapped it was, well, it was right next to my waist on the right side. I could feel it. Now I'm a fairly thin woman and you couldn't see it if I was standing up, but if you, if I was lying flat, you could kind of see a little, a bump there. And it was the size of my fist. And I actually felt it for three years because my husband had left me. I had no health insurance. And so I'm not a person who makes bills on purpose. And so I just did not go to the hospital doctor or anything. I had shooting pains down my right leg. Like just in the, suddenly they would be, feel like somebody was jabbing me with a knitting needle or something. And three years I felt this thing growing and never said a word. I live alone. So I didn't say anything to anybody. And then I was at a prayer meeting with my church. It was just a Sunday night get together and we were meeting at someone's home. We got to the part of the prayer meeting where they said, we're going to go around the room and everybody share one thing that you want us to pray over. So we went around the room and when they got to me, I said, well, I have this thing growing in my side. I can't, I don't know what it is, but it's definitely, I can feel it growing in my side and I have a shooting pain down my leg. I don't know if these things are connected, but it's that same leg. So I need the Lord to heal that for me. Well, my sister, Kathy, was at that prayer meeting, and of course, they prayed for me. And then she was like messaging the family. She got the phone out. She's like, there's an emergency. Karen has this tumor thing or something. And immediately, I mean, it was like, this is what my family does. Like, they want to solve the issue today. 
And I had no health insurance and I did not want to go to the doctor without health insurance because then I would never be able to get health insurance. It was about a week before they all decided. One brother-in-law just said to me, I will just write a check and pay for insurance for you for a year. He did that. And I went to see a doctor and I hadn't been to the doctor. I've hardly ever been to the doctor my whole life, except when I had babies. It had been maybe a decade or something since I'd seen a doctor. He said to me, what would you like me to check out today? He said, do you have any specific issues? I told him about this tumor and he could see it. He could feel it and see it there when he was checking me. And he decided that we needed to check that out. And then we did. So they checked it out. How long after he checked it, did was surgery scheduled? He checked it out. Then he, he decided that I needed to have imaging done. And then they decided they needed to do a biopsy. So for my 50th birthday, I got a biopsy. You know, lots of people get gifts and big events. And I got a biopsy for my 50th mm-hmm. birthday. When they did the biopsy, they said, this is definitely cancer. It's a tumor. And it's something called liposarcoma. And he said, it's the cancer of the fatty tissues of the body. I have five years to live. They were very distressed. So my birthday's in December and they scheduled surgery for February 11th because they had to arranged to have a lot of different people there. It was an exploratory surgery. They knew they had to take the tumor out, but they didn't know what the tumor would encompass. So they had to have like a urologist there who maybe had to fix things that related to that part of your body. They needed people there who had expertise in all these different things. So February 11, so it was like six weeks after my biopsy that I got the surgery scheduled. That time was very stressful. I'm somebody who likes schedule. And I knew I'd have a lot of stuff to get done before surgery. So your sister found out that it has a, when you, you're diagnosed with this, you have five years. That's the average lifespan for someone diagnosed with liposarcoma. And you had been carrying this around for three years. Yeah. So that probably left you two years. Right, right. Wow. So God's timing is like, it's perfect. I did say to the doctor that day, this is going to be a new adventure. He said, I'm surprised like you're not crying. And I said, I have this firm belief that God is right. He's an author. I'm an author. I write a lot. And I said to him, I I just believe God's writing my life story. And this is part of it. There's going to be ups and downs in every life story. So this will be an adventure to live through cancer. They obviously, they got the tumor out. Well, let me tell you a couple more stories about all that. So my sisters, I have these five amazing sisters. I overheard them arguing over who was going to take me to the hospital for the surgery. And I know there's lots of people who don't have a lot of family support, but my family just jumped in. I heard them saying, well, I took the day off work and I took the day off work too. Well, I saw, I took the day off work too. We're all going to, so I had to be at the hospital at six in the morning for my surgery and my sisters and my parents were there at the hospital. They did not have to be there at six in the morning because, you know, you're filling out paperwork. Um, they did not have to be there, but they were all there with me. They were there throughout the whole surgery. I gave them all assignments. I had one of them assigned to take a picture of me as soon as I came out of surgery because I wanted to know what I looked like. One sister's job was to put deodorant on me because when you go to have surgery, you can't brush your teeth. You can't, you have to take a shower and then not put anything on. And I said, that's going to be like noon or something. And then I need deodorant. So I don't care if I'm completely out of it. You lift my arm and you put deodorant on there. I remember after the surgery, feeling my arm go up and I feel this deodorant being put on. So all my sisters took their jobs very seriously. I write in a journal every night. And have for like 30 something years. And so one sister's job was to come in there and talk to me about 
what I wanted to be written in my journal that night. They each had a job. Have you always been that organized? I'm a very happy-go-lucky person as long as I know what the plan is. I really need a plan. And even, even if the plan is that there is no plan, I'm okay with that. I just have to know the plan. So that's part of my personality style. And my sisters all wanted a job. They wanted to help me somehow. I mean, my mom went and picked up my mail. I was still a publicist at the time. And it was my job to pick up the mail from the post office box. And so my mom, I gave her the key and she picked it up. She wanted to write checks. I was writing checks in those days to pay the bills. I had her depositing and they all wanted something to do to be helpful to me. It was very cool. That's wonderful that you had those, everybody there. Because not, like you said, not everybody has that. They all, I never went to a, a doctor's appointment alone at one time. That's wonderful. So they got the tumor out. Was it benign? So I'm in recovery. And then after recovery, they send me to the hospital room where I'm going to recover. And this incision that they did was nine inches long on my abdomen with 29 staples in it. We counted them because that's who I am. That's, that's what you do. So 29 staples. It was a good incision. So the doctor said, we got the tumor out. We were really happy because it was all enclosed. They didn't find any signs of it anywhere else, but just inside this tumor. So they were thrilled about that. And he said, we've sent it to pathology. So meanwhile, I'm in on that recovery bed and then I need to move myself over to the bed that I'm going to stay in for a few days while I'm recovering. And my leg wouldn't move. I said to them, how do I get from this bed to that bed? And they said, well, put your feet over here. And put your arms over and then just swing your body over. And I said, that leg won't go over. It won't move. And so they said, oh, it's probably still dead from the anesthesia. And so they picked up my leg and moved me over there to that bed. And I didn't have any feeling in the leg at all, as in like not for the next day and the day after that. And people kept coming in saying, do you feel anything yet? And I'm like, no. And do you feel anything yet? No, I don't feel anything. I did feel my foot and I feel the hip. But in between, there's next to no feeling at all. Although at one point when it was February and one of the doctors came in and he said, I want you to close your eyes and I'm just going to touch your leg softly and tell me when you feel things. So the whole bottom half of my leg, I don't feel and I don't feel the knee at all. But above the knee, I felt his cold fingers. I said, I feel cold. I don't feel touch particularly, but I feel temperatures. There's different nuances to the way my leg feels. And of course, first time out of bed was excruciating because I had to have both hands on the walker. And you really want to hold in that incision in because your guts are falling out. They finally found a wrap for me and they wrapped it around the incisions. So because normally somebody would step up and they would have their hand like over the incision, but I needed both hands on the walker. My brain could not figure out how to make that leg work because it just was dead. I'd been in the hospital two days and it was evening time the doctor comes rushing into the hospital room. And he says to me, Karen, Karen, I am so excited. He said, I was driving home and I got a call from pathology and I turned around and came back to tell you that the tumor is not cancer. It's benign. It's something called a schwannoma, which is a tumor that wraps itself around a nerve. And I said to him, okay. And he just looks at me like he had turned around and drove back because he knew I was going to want this information like immediately. And he goes, you are so strange. And I said, remember, I told you that God is writing my story. And I just figure that's part of the story. After that, I was 50 years old. I had to relearn to walk with a leg that didn't work. I went home from the hospital to my sister Carla's house because I live in a stacked townhome. First level is the garage. 
14 steps to the living room, dining room, kitchen, 14 more steps to the bedrooms. And I had a leg that didn't work. I had to figure out how I was going to maneuver. I went to Carla's house. There was one step up and then the rest of it was flat. They took care of me for 10 days after my surgery while I got more and more comfortable with the walker. But I ended up, I said to them after 10 days, I have got to go home. And they're like, why? We'll take care of you. And I said, because this is not the reality of my life. I have to figure out how to survive on my own without somebody. Like, here's what would happen. I would think, hmm, I'm getting thirsty. I should get up and go fill this water glass that gets more ice and more water. I would think it. And my friend, Mary, Mary would just show up in the room and grab my water and come back and bring it. Like, I would take a shower, sitting in the shower chair. And when I would be done, she would have gathered up my dirty clothes and had already put them in the washer. I said, this is so not a reality. I have to learn how to live what my reality is, not somebody taking care of every little whim. Ten days, I came home. The leg that's paralyzed is the right leg, the driving leg. Oh, goodness. So I had to figure out how to drive. The foot works and the heel works. Let me step back and say this. So the result of the surgery, the paralyzed leg is the biggest part is the quadricep muscle, which is the top muscle in the front from your hip to your knee on your leg. It's the longest muscle in the body. And it's the muscle that makes your leg go down and forward. I live in a snowy climate. And when it snows and you get snow on your boots, I can't stamp the snow off my boot because the leg doesn't stamp. It's down because of gravity. When I go swimming, the leg just floats up. There's no way to make it go down. It's very funny. The first time I got in water, I was on a cruise with my sisters and I just was going to go splash in the water. I'm not even a swimmer. I just going to go splash in the water. And I got into the water up to like my waist, but the leg just wanted to float. So then that was scary because I was going to fall over. So that quadricep muscle, I can't push the foot forward to step on the gas of the brake. So I have to pick it up with the good leg, that's it on the gas pedal. And then it'll go back and forth just fine between the gas and the brake. But I had to like learn all of this stuff. You're still able to drive, obviously, then. And my friend Mary was the brave one who drove with me the first time just to see. I struggled a lot in the beginning because my leg would just buckle for no reason because the brain didn't know how to make the leg work. And I talked to the doctor about it. He said, besides the quadricep muscle, the rest of your muscles work fine. So I said, okay, I'm going to teach those muscles how to work. I used the walker for a while and then I used crutches and then I used one crutch just in case the leg buckled. I loved the grocery store and Walmart and Target, anybody that had a grocery cart, because then I could walk fairly confidently knowing that if the leg buckled, the cart would hold me up. That really helped me a lot. I was a person who worked out before the paralyzed leg, and I was determined to start walking again. I took the walker and turned it backwards so that it was open in the front, and I held onto it, and I practiced walking. Like just moving my legs. This work at home video has kicks and sidesteps. And when I would try to kick, I would be like picking up with the whole body and the leg would just flop. And I was determined I was going to make that leg work. Started wearing pedometer. I walked about a thousand miles a year, every year since the surgery 12 years ago, more like 1500 miles. And so it's been about 20,000 miles I've walked on this paralyzed leg. Not everybody, obviously, depending on their situation, may not be able to walk again and stuff. I know there was some other times in my life where I was affected, where I couldn't walk and 
had to relearn how to walk. It's horrible. It's painful. (laughs) I'll just say that. And going through physical therapy, but that determination, you know, I I totally get that determination because it's like, I am bound and determined. I'm going to walk again, no matter what. So now you're, you're not on any walker. Do you have to wear a brace or anything? I actually went to a doctor who I asked them, how do you feel about a brace? There were three doctors. They're all like looking at my situation and they decided that a brace would weaken me at this point because my body would learn to lean on the brace instead of on the muscles that actually do work. That's not to say that at some point I won't need one. And at some point I might need a cane. I mean, most old people do. So at some point I'm going to need a cane. You're not old. No, here's my thought. I'm going to do as much as I can, as long as I can. The doctor said to me at the time, Karen, you're forever paralyzed. You can ride the cart at the airport. And I said to him, there is no way. If I am able to walk at all, I'm going to walk. And I think a piece of that determination came from the situation when my husband left me about 10 years before my surgery. We were childhood sweethearts. We had grown up together and he caught a very serious and sad disease called midlife crisis. And when he left me, my world was rocked. For three years, I really, really cried and struggled and it was a total nightmare. But three years after Mark left, I realized that I had lost my personality and I've got this bright, fun personality. I'm always having fun. And I was not having fun for three years after Mark left. And I said to myself, Karen, that's enough. I used my mom voice. I said to myself, just because Mark made the decision he made does not mean your life is over. You can do whatever you choose to do. You can focus for the rest of your life on what you don't have, or you can focus the rest of your life on what you do have, your choice. And I listened to that mom voice that I used for myself. And I made the decision, a very intentional decision to focus on what I was thankful for instead of the one thing. It made me annoyed the fact that Mark made his decision all by himself without any help from anybody. Not to say that I was a perfect wife. I mean, who's perfect? It never would have occurred to me that that would have happened to me. But I decided that life was not over at the age of 41. Like I still had a lot of living to do. So I made the decision to focus on what I was happy about. And I found so much to be happy for. I live in the most gorgeous state. I mean, Colorado, I always say God was in a good mood when he made Colorado. I get up in the morning, I see Mount Evans. It's beautiful. And the sun shines here all the time. I have a family who loves me. I live alone. I could focus on the alone, but I choose to focus on all the stuff that I'm thankful for. I really have no complaints. I'm having such a fun life. And even with the paralyzed leg, people forget that I have a paralyzed leg until they see me take the steps because I have to do the one step at a time. You know, I I tell people, go ahead of me. It's going to take me a while to get up these stairs. But people don't know. A lot of people have no idea that I have a paralyzed leg because I don't focus my life on the negatives. I focus it on all the blessings. Now, when you was married and prior to Mark leaving, did you have any idea he was planning on leaving? We had never used the word divorce, not one time in our whole marriage. And it had been a rough six weeks or so right before Mark left. His brother and his brother's wife were living with us with their three little kids. We had our two kids and they were just living with us because their house It was one of those situations where they could get into the house in like six weeks and they needed a place to camp out. There was a lot of stress in the house just because it was not a big house, enough room for all those people. I assumed that Mark's grumpiness or whatever was related to that. I was completely surprised. 
he did talk about being unhappy, but I didn't realize that it was about this. And the truth is, he's always been a steady Christian guy. He got saved when he was a teenager, doesn't come from a saved family, but he had served the Lord very faithfully for all those years and was really just a good, solid guy. And if you met him today, you would think, oh, nice guy. He's a very nice guy. And we had, I thought, a fine marriage. Now I've looked back on it and I've learned a lot of stuff since then that I didn't know during the marriage. It never occurred to me to break that promise that I made before God and all these witnesses, because that's not something that never occurred to me. I assumed that when you said that, that that meant for life. One Saturday morning, Mark and I, and I said to him, so what are you doing today? It was Saturday. And he said, oh, I have a few errands to run. And I said, well, I'm taking the kids down to the church because it's the Bible quiz tournament. So I'll be down there helping with the Bible quizzing. And he said, okay. And so that evening when I got home from the Bible quizzing, all of his stuff was gone. Like there was a bare spot in the bedroom where his dresser was and half the closet was empty and one picture off the wall here. And just, there were just lots of bare spots. Without saying anything to me at all, he left. And I was like, what? Like, I had no idea. So prior to that, like, there was no sign of infidelity. The truth is, Mark left me for a boat. You know how I was going to die of cancer? He didn't do the classic leaving you for a woman. He really just was tired of being a Christian and a father and a husband and a worker. He just wanted to go fishing. And we did not have very much money during all those years while we were raising the babies. What he wanted more than anything else was a boat. He went out and bought this boat. He literally, he wanted that more than anything else. Now, the sad part was a few months later, I get served divorce papers from him. And when the courts got involved, like he didn't pay me anything for months. And he was the main breadwinner because we were a traditional family. I had my little job, but I didn't have the big job. I get the divorce papers. And when the courts got involved, they said, excuse me, you guys were married 25 years. You have kids at home. You're going to pay a lot of money every month to support these people. Instead of getting to go fishing, Mark had to take a second job to pay the child support and the wife support that he paid for years after left. So he didn't get what he was wanting. Now it's been 21 years this month since he left. My life continues to be really fun after I got through those three years. And, you know, there are definitely moments, but mostly it's fun. You're going through this three years. Most individuals I know that do go through a separation or even a divorce, and especially with being in church. Like that kind of adds an extra to it. But some people think it's God punishing me is what did I do wrong? Then you get mad, you get angry. You may go through periods of like, I literally hate that person for what they did. All these different emotions. And it's like, how do you come to terms with that? Because there's the forgiveness aspect of it. I mean, you literally have to work through all that, each one of the different stuff. What I learned about forgiveness is that it's not a one-time thing. Oh yes, definitely. You forgive and then later, you forgive again and then you have to forgive again. You'll go through something that brings it all back to you and then you have to forgive again. Mark and I, he's been basically okay when it comes to his interactions with me and the girls. When we were talking to the court, we had to figure out, you know, where the kids were going to be, you know, whether they were going to have visitation with him. And he was very honest with the court-appointed child advocate, where he said to them, I raised my kids in the church. I raised them to do all of these things. I left I left the church, I left my family, and it's not their fault. 
So I was very thankful for that because the court said they decided that there would be no, the kids did not have to go stay with their dad. They could go and see him when they wanted to, that they weren't, it was not going to be one of those every other weekend things. So I was very thankful for him for being honest about it. And even the day the divorce was final, the two of us are walking out of the court together. And I said to Mark, well, you got what you wanted, got your divorce. Are you feeling happy about it? And he said, I don't really know what I'm feeling. Women tend to be able to identify what they're feeling maybe a little easier than men. He didn't know what he was feeling. I think he felt a little sad. You know, he got what he wanted. He made that decision for all five of us, all of my whole family. And it's a little sad to me that our grandkids have never seen Grandma Karen and Grandpa Mark married to each other. We had our first grandson two years later. I have a cordial relationship now. We don't see each other very often because he now lives in another state, but we're cordial and we've got the great kids and great grandkids together. Not great grandkids, but awesome grandkids. Between the separation and the divorce, was there any time like you just blew up at him? Because like, what were you thinking? Um, I'm not the blow up type. Really what I did was I prayed a lot that the Lord would hurt him. I appreciate that honest answer because there's there either you're going to blow up at the other person or you're going to, like you said, pray those type of prayers. I mean, I read through the Bible every year. I get to those verses that say that you're going to get judged. Or that Jesus, God is the judge of us all. And I'd be like, judge him, Lord. But after a while, I started thinking my biggest concern when Mark left was I don't want to turn into the bitter old lady that I've seen over and over. And the truth is Mark was raised by a bitter old divorced lady who hated his father and his father was a terrible guy. And I was very careful. Not one time did I ever say something negative about my daughter's dad to my daughters. Never. Not one time. What made in your mind not to say anything? Because there are the situations, divorced parents, separated parents, and the ones bashing the other. What made it in your mind to determine I'm not going to do that? I watched his mother, who was not a Christian woman, but I watched how she treated. And I thought, Mark grew up thinking, well, I'm half terrible because my dad is terrible because that's all his mother ever said. So I said to my daughters things like, your dad's made a very sad decision for all of us. Yes, we're very sad about it. But I never said he's an evil, wicked man. And to this day, it's been 21 years and I'm very careful with my daughters. And, you know, I'll say to them, have you chatted with your dad recently? Is he doing okay? I ask my daughters about him, but I'm really careful. And they'll make some comment, you know, oh, he's off doing his whatever. I'll come up with some negative thing, but I'm careful. I just don't want that to come from me. What I know is that kids grow up and they can look back and see who was there for them. And I did say to my daughters very clearly, I will never leave you or forsake you. Just like the Lord for me, I will always be there for you. You never have to worry about losing your mom. Now, someday I will die. But beyond that, I will be here to support you forever. I didn't want them to think, though, dad deserted me. Now mom's going to desert me too. I had no identity away from Mark. We had been together since we were 12 and 13. It was always Karen and Mark and Mark and Karen, always. And then suddenly here I am and I'm just Karen. I don't even know who just Karen is. It was a big identity. And then you're thinking, obviously I'm a terrible person. If the one person who promised to love me till death does part decides he doesn't love me anymore, then there's obviously something really flawed in me. Over years though, I've come to the knowledge, the realization that everyone is flawed, but Mark left me because of Mark and it had nothing to do with me. That's a good point you bring up because a lot of people do, they go through those periods of what's wrong with me? Was I not good enough? 
how did you encourage yourself during those times when those thoughts did pop up? Because they do pop up. They absolutely do. And to, the truth is, to this day, they pop up. I have never had a relationship with another man of any kind. Well, you know, besides friends and family and stuff. But I'm saying, you know, never been romantic at all with another man. I acknowledge that I have a scarred heart. That if somebody was pursuing me, I would be so careful. When I got married, I was young and optimistic and never occurred to me that life would happen. And now at the age of 62, I'm going, I'm not going to give away my joyful life just to have companionship for the sake of companionship. My identity is now strong as Karen. And Mark is a piece of my history, a very important piece because from Mark, I got three great daughters and the world's best grandkids. But somebody asked me recently if Mark came back to the Lord and was interested in me again, would I be willing to remarry him? And the truth is, it's been 20 years. He's kind of a stranger to me now. I can't really imagine that. How do you build up who Karen is? Because like you said, at that point, you're separated, then you go through this divorce. And it's like, well, who am I now? Because for all those years, I was it was me and, and my husband. So who am I now? Well, I knew who I was at the core. I was somebody who loved Jesus. And the truth is, when I came home to that empty house or that house with empty spaces in it, that night was a, a Bible quiz banquet. I packed up the girls and we went back to the church. The next morning, I went back to church because it was Sunday morning then. Sunday night, I went back to church. There was a prayer meeting Monday night. I went back to church. I lived my life with this saying, when you don't know what to do, do what you know. I felt like for the first several years, I was just putting one foot in front of the other. I was not going to waver, not one bit on my Jesus piece. And I also have heard that you don't make big decisions when you're emotional. So I held steady on everything that I had done in the past, just moving forward. And over time, I started to feel positive that I was being successful. Like it was shocking that every time I paid a bill, because when I sat down with the budget, money coming in, money going out, there was always more money going out than was coming in. But every month the bills were paid. It was the Lord. Over time, the more successes I had, the more I built up my own self-image again, because I had strong self-esteem before, but I started thinking, I'm okay. I'm, I'm actually okay. And every time I had a happy moment, I was like, oh, I just had a happy moment. I guess I paid attention to the good stuff that was happening. And over time, I realized that I'm really a great person, just Karen, without Karen and Mark. Now, how did you handle it like when other people would say stuff? Because there's the naysayers out there. There's always going to be naysayers. Well, the truth is I didn't share this story with any strangers for about three years. One of my sister's husbands left her at the same time mine left me. And neither of us talked about it. At one point, I have to say, I was at our general conference on the platform, singing with my sisters, with thousands of people in the audience. And I thought, what am I doing up here? Do these people have no idea that my husband left me and I now have divorced after my name? No fault of my own. It was none of my choice. I just had to deal with what I had to deal with. I thought, what am I doing on the stage at general conference? I just kept doing the next right thing. And my self-image grew as a result of that. I found out that I could do lots of things. I also acknowledge the stuff that I can't do. There's stuff that I am not good at. And when there's a marriage, a lot of times you each take the part that you're good at. So I have learned to ask for help. There's a guy in my church who watches my tires on my car. And he'll say to me, 
Aaron, you need to go get your tires rotated. And I'll say, okay, because I don't think about tires. It never occurs to me to look at tires. He watches out for my tires on my car. Not a big fancy thing. He knows I'm alone. I don't know anything about tires. I have a son-in-law who works in heating and air. And he'll say to me, um, how long since you've changed the furnace filter? And I'll be like, I don't know. Last time you told me to. And he'll be like, it's time to change the furnace filter. <laughs> I have learned to not just accept it, but ask for help. Because I know I'm good at a lot of things, but there's stuff I'm not good at. I'm reaching out for the help. And then who is able to help? And you're right. When you go through something real difficult and challenging, like you said, there are some people that don't learn that when you've been through some major event and you're emotional, don't make no major decisions. Because that's the worst thing you could do. I did have a friend say to me about three years after Mark left, a friend of mine, and he said to me, Karen, you need to buy a house. And I said, there is no way. I don't have that income. And he said, I'll walk with you through the process. I'm pretty sure that you can do it. And he worked with me, basically held my hand through that whole process and went with me to the closing. He's always been somebody I could go to for advice. And I'm really thankful he did that because my townhome the payments have stayed steady while here in Colorado, the prices are gigantic and I would not have been able to afford to live if he had not insisted that I buy this townhome 18 years ago. So I'm really thankful for those people in my life who step up. And actually now my family's telling me, all right, time to refinance. And I'm like, okay, talk to me about this process. Like, I just don't, I worry about the stuff I control and I let God take care of the rest. And my family steps up and says, you need to do such and such. And I'll be like, okay, and I, I do it. If you have like the real estate agent in your family, if you've got the heating and air guy that can help fill in those roles. And you know, God does that. He he does send people in our lives that can help us with exactly the certain spots where we're not able to do anything about it. But God will know the exact person we do need. Now, were you very independent prior to when you was married? My family was raised to be capable. And I raised my own kids this way. They would be like, can I do such and such? And I'd say, well, let's talk about how you could do that. And let, let me help you figure out how you can do that. In a giant family, especially if you're one of the old ones, you work. Like I cooked and cleaned and stuff from the time I was eight years old because there was lots of little brothers and sisters that mom was taking care of. So we handled the household stuff. So I've always been very capable. I was never the type to be scared to stay at home by myself. Like when Mark would, every fall, he would go hunting in the mountains and that never bothered me to be home alone. However, I did have a moment after he left. We lived in a ranch style house at the time. One night, the girls were at youth group and I was at home, as a hot summer night. And I decided I was gonna be taking a bath, I was gonna read a book, and I had the bathroom window open above my head, directly above my head. And you couldn't see into the tub from where I was, it just was giving me fresh air, it was lovely. And people who don't live in Colorado, you have no idea, it cools down every night here, and we have next to no humidity, so it was probably 65 degrees outside at the time. And I'm in the tub and I hear a man's voice outside my window. I was like, there is actually a man looking in the window right now. And he can't see me. I'm below the window directly. And he was even with the window. There's no way to see straight down. But I thought, I'm in the tub. And the light's across the room. And so I very carefully put my hands on the edge of the tub, put my face against the screen. And there was a man's face on the other side of the screen. And I said, get out of here right now or I'm calling the police. Like with my meanest, scariest voice, I was shaking on the inside. And the guy, I scared him and he ran away. But then I was freaking out too. And, you know, then... I'm like grabbing the shower curtain, running over to turn off the light and getting a towel. And it turns out that the, there was, had been a guy who'd been looking in our windows. So that's the biggest reason why I bought the townhome that stacked like this, where the ground floor is the garages, because I did not feel very safe when Mark moved away and took all of the guy stuff. 
in our driveway that looked like there's a man who lives here. That little experience right there talked me into finding someplace else to live, to feel safe. I feel like I do the stuff I can do, and then I let God handle his part. I mean, there's been a few scary moments, but what I found is that I've always been able to make it through. Not my favorite to have to deal with things like tires and furnace filters. I don't want to have to do that stuff. But the Lord has always provided somebody to help me when I needed it, if I was willing to ask. And let me just say one other thing. I have a friend who had a health issue that she will deal with from now until eternity. And it's been a few years. And she occasionally will post about how horrible her life is as a result of this health issue. Now, she still has beautiful family. She's still able to do life, but she has this one health piece. It's impacting her life. Yeah, and it bothers me. And I talk to her um, off and on about it. But I really believe it's what you focus on. I could totally focus on the fact that I'm alone and that I have this leg that doesn't work right. Or I could focus on the fact that the sun is shining. I've got some peaches I bought from from the farmer's market yesterday that are juicy and lovely. That I feel great today. That church was awesome yesterday. I mean, I can focus on the good stuff or I can choose to focus on the bad stuff. It's my choice. And I think it's way better and way more fun. And it just makes life so much better if you focus on what you have. Instead of what you don't have. In my practice, a lot of my clients, I have them like early on, especially if they're dealing with a lot of depression, I'll have them write a gratitude list, five things every night. And it is just amazing what those five things could do. And I tell them, they're like every night, every night, when you write five things down every night, you know, it's just amazing that when they come back, they start feeling a little better. Because like you said, it's the thing of focus. I often say to people, when I speak at a ladies conference, I'll ask for a volunteer to come up and I'll ask them to put their nose against the wall. And I'll tell them, describe this room. What do you see? And they're like, well, I see paint and that's all. And I'm like, you don't see anything but paint. And then I have them turn around and have them describe the room and then they can describe all the things they see. And then I say to them, you get to decide whether you're going to only look at the wall or whether you're going to turn around and look at all the stuff that life has to offer you. I like to do interlocking puzzles, like thousand piece puzzles. I think it's relaxing and I don't have much time to do them now, but lots lots of times I'll have a puzzle going. And if you look at one piece at a time, sometimes it's a dark piece. It could be like a dark day in your life. And sometimes it could be a bright and lovely piece, like really pretty colors. And when you put all the pieces together, it makes a beautiful picture. Some days of your life, it's dark. And some days of your life are light. But if you can step back enough to realize that God is painting a beautiful picture, You can have a little more peace about the hard time. And the last thing about that is if everything was perfect, like I love a good book. I love to read a great story. I read and read and read a great story or people watch movies too. I mean, if everything was perfect, the whole story, it would be the most boring story ever. Can you imagine this perfect husband and the perfect wife and the two perfect kids and the perfect job and the perfect meal and everything's perfect and you would be yawning by the second page. What makes a great story is having conflict and having ups and having downs and hills and valleys so that by the end, it's a beautiful story that took and you followed the ups and downs and and they always end up happily ever after. And we're going to end up happily happily ever after because heaven's going to be amazing. And I said that to my family when I got that 
cancer diagnosis. They're like, ah, uh-huh, cancer. And I said, I've had a really great life. And, and what's the worst thing that could happen with cancer? The worst thing, you die and go to heaven. What's the worst thing about going to heaven? Nothing. I just think that stepping back and saying, um, I'm going to focus on the big picture and not just this one little negative thing. And it could be a giant negative, but it's just one. I bet you you'd find lots of things to be thankful for. And you talked about five things a night. I write in a journal and have ever since my youngest daughter was born, she's almost 34. It occurred to me when she was first born that if I I was in a car wreck or something and died, she would not know her mother. I'm writing in a journal every night. And I've written every night with the exception of about half a dozen nights where I, something happened and I usually driving through the night, I never went to bed. And it's always the last thing I do before I go to bed. But every night in my journal, I write something I'm thankful for every night for 30 years. That is awesome. And I imagine that has a lot to do with how you view things and focus. And of course, you know, having a a relationship with God and having that establishment with God, and that's been your life. As we wrap up today, and I've really enjoyed this, you know, learning more about you, uh, learning a lot more. And I do, I love the, love the, there's a lot of life to live even after the storm. And I think that is so fitting. Can I tell you where I found that? Where did you find that? So I read through the Bible every year, reading through with my sisters, and we all read the same version, the same layout every year. So some years we read chronological, some years we read where it's a little Psalms, a little Proverbs, a little old, a little new, but we're all reading the same verses, different versions often. But so one year I was reading and I got to the verse in, in Genesis where it said, and after the flood, Noah lived 300 and whatever years and he died. And I think when we think of Noah, we think of the flood. That's all we think of. But he lived 367 or whatever it was, years after the flood. And the light bulb went on that there is life after you go through that hard storm. There is a lot of life to live. So if his whole life was just focused on the storm, then what would he have done the rest of those 300 something years? So that's where the light bulb went on for me, that there's a lot of life after Mark leaves me, after a paralyzed leg. After whatever the next negative thing that happens in my life, there's still life after that. And even at the, the moment of death, when you serve the Lord, there's life after that storm because be with the Lord. When you were reading that, where were you at in your life when you, when that just like hit you? Like right after Mark had left. Yeah. Well, sometime in the couple of years after that. And the, I was just like, oh my goodness, there still is life to live. There is still life to live. As we wrap up, I want you to speak to that person right now who's out there, who's who maybe they're going through a separation or a divorce, or they're facing like a serious medical issue. Talk to that person. Obviously, there's challenges in life. And I think that we forget often that it's our job to live and then to die. And then after death is the resurrection. And so it's important to focus on what is the most important. What really is important? Is it important that my leg doesn't work very well? No, that is not important to eternity. Is it important that it really, even if you look back on my husband leaving me, what's important is making it to heaven. And you have the choice whether to let the hard times in your life make you better. Like I've grown so much. I probably, if I had it to do again, 
would write that into my story that Mark left. Kind of weird to say that, but the person I am today compared to who I was at the age of 41 is completely different. And the Lord cannot use somebody for who hasn't gone through anything, um, but he can really use somebody who's had a little pain in their life. Um, I could not relate to pain before. I had had a really happy childhood. Now, you've noticed that I'm a happy person, but I could not relate to pain. I'd be like, oh, that's really sad, but I could not relate. But now when I hear about somebody's marriage breaking up, my heart breaks for them. When I hear about somebody who, and and even then after Mark left me, I could not relate to health issues because I always had a healthy body. Health is like, that's really sad for them. But now I get it. And I, you talked about having um, a walker earlier back in the day. And I can, I see a person now. I don't just see the walker or the wheelchair. God can use somebody who's been through a little bit of life way more than he can use somebody who hasn't experienced any negative things. So my suggestion to you is to ask the Lord what you're, you're supposed to learn here and really work on your light, on your heart so that you don't turn bitter. Life is not supposed to be easy. And we as Americans, especially, we think, I mean, people right now in our culture, especially, are so upset. They, they live in a beautiful home. They've got air conditioner, drive a nice car. They have a great plenty of food to eat. They go on vacations and they're focused on, on one little thing that's negative about things. And so I want to say to you, focus on what you have and not on what you don't have and ask the Lord what he's trying to teach you because he's painting a beautiful picture. And this might be just one of those dark pieces in the picture. If it was all perfect, it would be like pale pink and just the most boring thing to look at ever. But um, a real life has dark and light in ups and downs and happies and sads. And so you might be in one of the sad parts now or one of the down parts now, but there is life after your storm. Amen. That was beautiful. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for being on the podcast today. I've really enjoyed this. It was fun. I really hardly do anything that's not fun. I have to admit, I find fun in everything, but absolutely. Yeah, it's been fun. Yes. All right, everybody. Until next time, if you know anybody that this would be helpful, please share the podcast with them, share this episode with them and have a blessed and wonderful day. Thank you for listening to the Real Talk 238 podcast for this week's episode. If you have enjoyed this episode of the Real Talk 238 podcast, please subscribe so you will be notified when new episodes are released. If you would like to leave a comment, or there is a topic you would like discussed on the Real Talk 238 podcast, you can drop an email at therealtalk238 at gmail.com. You can also find the Real Talk 238 podcast on Facebook and Instagram listed as at therealtalk238. As a reminder, the Real Talk 238 podcast is not a substitute nor does it replace therapy. Always seek the advice of your physician or a qualified licensed mental health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or mental health disorder. Until next time, have a blessed day.